This is The Wireless Reader. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. So there was a little boy, and he had demons in his head. He didn't think of them as demons, of course, but they felt like demons. When he was unhappy, and that was a lot of the time, the screaming of the demons built up inside him. It was a high-pitched sound, like a kettle coming to the boil. Things were no good at home. It started early in the single-digit years. Everything the little boy did was wrong. He was in trouble often understand what he was in trouble for. The tension in the family home was palpable. There was always a storm waiting to break. On long grey afternoons, the boy would be studiously ignored by his mother, and he waited in fear for his father to come home. There were accusations of long silences. He was not allowed to eat, and he was not allowed to leave the table until late into the night. Seeping through everything was the understanding that what was required was an admission. Apologies were never enough, and his parents were implacable. They sought to punish, sure, but the reason that the seething conversations that happened over the dinner table every night got longer and longer and longer was that something unattainable was being sought. The more the little boy said, I'm sorry, the more menacing his parents became. Ah, no, he wasn't getting away with that. Slap would have been so much kinder. As the years went by and the pitch of the demons grew higher, the boy understood that no punch would ever come. There would be no release. He took to banging his head on walls. Each impact felt like a thundercrack. It didn't release the tension in the family, but it allowed him to feel something other than endless escalation. Often blood would come. He'd see to that. And things got worse and worse. Times were hard and there were financial pressures. The atmosphere was thick. Poison anger now flowed freely. There was always sport on the television. Rugby. Boxing. Big men with broken faces. As the fighters fought, the father echoed each punch in miniature on the arms of the armchair. The little boy watched. The boxers looked terrible, standing there sweating under harsh lights all but naked, wounds pissing blood, eyes unable to open, mouth unable to close, and a horde of baying white folk all around them. The boy yearned to feel that battered, that release. He'd moved on from walls. He'd learned the properties of hard items that could be found around the house. He headbutted the sharp corners of metal radiators, making himself bleed. He broke thick-bottomed tumblers from the SO station into his face. He found a crowbar in the garage and gave himself a black eye. Always in secret, always pretending it was something else. By now the family relationship was one never-ending inquisition into why he was a bad boy and he would not be allowed to eat or go to bed until they found out the reason why. He would take the only refuge available and excuse himself and lock himself in the lavatory and for five minutes punch himself in the face until he could see stars. And choice is only choice when there are options. And the boxing clubs are all in the poor parts of town. Where the pressure builds up and release is found through knowing how to stand. Knowing how to weigh your opponent. Knowing how to throw a good punch. 
There's fellowship and family, discipline and technique. Maybe there's even salvation. But there might also be death. There'll certainly be brain damage. There'll be broken noses and cauliflower ears. There'll be organs that don't work properly anymore. And a bag. There's forgetfulness and sluggishness. You who used to pride yourself on your speed. A butterfly once called boxing a game where rich white folks come to watch two black guys beat each other into the ground. Our twisted society chooses to see this particular abuse of oneself as noble and proud, or at least as something neutral, as sport. I'm afraid I watch the big, muscled man, exhausted and defeated even in victory, and I just see another little boy. Leslie Mapp is a writer I esteem as a man and as a storyteller. In his short story, Fighting Talk, the match is extremely uneven as a young man faces harassment from those who are meant to be on his side. I appeared with Anna Whitwam at the Cambridge Literary Festival. Her novel is Boxer Handsome. It's inspired by her grandfather and it explores the East End, the boxing clubs, the personalities and rivalries both inside and outside the ring. Ian Green explores the defiance of the dead body. It's from his piece that the title of this show is taken. Music by Peter Kunert. See me run. Leslie Mapp. See me run under street lamps illuminating the dark. Tall lights arched at the neck, driven into the ground by laughing men, making the streets safe for lonely figures. See me run from the simple things that hang in the wardrobe, from the single bed pushed under the window, with the curtains which Marina never cleans. The vacuum is all you get, she says. The hostel doesn't pay for anything else. Hear the echo of my shoes, glancing off glass and the metal of parked cars, sitting hunched along the curb. News of bombs on the radio. Wonder, who is this figure? Is he returning from light-jagged rooms, rolling with beating sound, crowded with people aching to be joined to another, covering the need with noise and wild antic? Is he security? Topping up his mean wage with what he can steal under cover of being an honest man. Perhaps he's mystery. What is more mysterious than a running man in the night? I'm more than mysterious to the red car that passes. To the police, I'm suspicious. I am a black man running. The car pulls in ahead. The passenger motioning me to stop as he gets out. The driver flashes the roof light, and for a moment the colour overpowers everything, uniting the three of us in a blue dawn. What's in the bag? Kit. Show me. I've eased the pack off my back and I'm opening it, when he pulls it from my hand and throws it on the floor. I quiver. Easy, son. Officer, don't officer me. He moves in close. Back up, now. Up against the railing. He's not as tall as me, but it's near. I can see a red scratch on one puffy cheek and the tired droop of his right eye. I step back. He ignores the bag. Pockets. I turn them out. 
a bunch of keys, a piece of pencil, a ten-pound note. Meanwhile, the driver has come to join the fun. Wearing rubber gloves like a doctor, he stoops and rummages in my bag. He pulls out a pair of boxing gloves and tosses them onto the pavement. They skid, which scuffs the leather. I'm furious. The passenger is still looking at me. Why all the keys? Opening up. No place I know around here open at 4am. Junior's Gym, Canning Town. The driver has found six aspirins in the bag, still in their silver packet, and is trying to disbelieve the label. Disappointed, he dives in again and pulls out my sketchbook from under a towel. It's full of pencilled men with muscles, and he smiles in triumph at his discovery. But he wants his words to find maximum amusement, so he holds off while the passenger dips his head and speaks into his radio. 2-5, St Morgan's Square, blackmail, 6-1. He looks at me. How old are you? 32. 32, black windsheeter, blue jogging pants, carrying a sports bag. Says he's on his way to Canning Town, open a gym. He stares at me as he relays my story. I shift slightly on my feet. He stares harder to keep me in my place while he listens to someone on the other end. No, not that I can see. He pauses, still listening, then mouths a question. Name? Paul Charles. He repeats my name into the radio and listens again, keeping his eyes on me all the time. I breathe steadily. Yes, Canning Town. He lets the radio fall back into place on his shoulder. Without realising it, he's relaxed. I have not relaxed. In the ring, I'd be on to him now. Squatting, the driver's shoulders also deflate as he senses something is over. He's still holding my sketchbook, but before he can offer it for attention, the passenger carries on. OK, Mr Charles, seems the local plod know all about you. You can put that stuff back in your pockets. Disappointed, the driver tosses the sketchbook back into the bag. Standing up heavily, he stumbles and kicks one of my gloves further along the pavement. I pull a face. He can't help reacting, getting in on the action. Any ID? I indicate the bag and bend down to pull at the end of the zip. Both officers tense again as I reach in and pull out a lanyard with a plastic ID headed Junior's Gym and Spa. It has a photo on the front that was me ten years ago, lean, afro-haired. I grew it long because it got in fighters' faces. That's why they banned them. It's short now, not even cornrows. I give the driver the card so he can compare me with the photograph. He reads aloud, Paul Charles, the lightning one, middleweight champion of England, 2002. Not so lightning these days, he says, unable to resist the jab. Slow, caught you easy. Never could beat a car. He flips back the ID, lanyard dangling. On your way. I collect my gloves, haul the kit bag onto my back and take off at a steady pace. The car toots as it passes, turning at the traffic lights. I jog straight on, past the silent sheds of the industrial park, beyond the garbage incinerator, to the brick two-storey warehouse on a corner, covered with its dust. I was reading when Marina announced herself the first time banging the door open with the hoover tube and pushing it under the bed. I gave her a hard time for disturbing me, but she just said, My job! I knew that someone young and white had replaced Ndemi to clean the place twice a week, and I knew that whoever it was had got Andrew across the corridor right confused. He's got the looks, and he knows it. Girls come on to him all the time, or so he says. 
but he wasn't understanding this one. She giving me mixed signals, innit? I told him to be careful. The wrong move could get him evicted. Most of us here are black men, so for her we're probably exotic. Look, I said, I'm a living stereotype, a black boxer. Although, after I'd seen her that first time, I understood how Andrew was right. She is puzzling. In her own way, Marina is a stereotype too. Short skirt, sexy snuffle in her throat, quick to reach out and touch people on the arm, but there's something else. After I chastised her for breaking into my rest, she switched off the hoover and told me about Romania. There was something plainer about her as she spoke, a directness in her eye. I could see the fighter in her. Next time she came, I showed her some drawings from the gym. She looked at me curiously, wondering if I really could be the artist. She was cooing over the muscles when I said, I'd like to draw you too. Like this, she said, pouting, pointing at a bare torso on the page. No clothes. Your face. My portrait, she sang, before going quiet for a moment. Then, wriggling her shoulders and waving her hands, she launched into more stories about life in Romania. I picked up my sketchbook, but she took the book from me and laid it gently down on the bed. Not now. Combinations work. Left and right, key and lock, switch and light. This time of the morning, the gym has an empty feel that can make you shiver. It waits. Skipping ropes, worn metal machines, filthy windows, and at one end a canvas ring. Hallowed ground. This place used to be a sewing machine factory. It thrived when every home had one, struggling on until it was only grannies who sewed. Then the grannies' children put them in homes, and it went bust. Two huge Singer posters were left on the end wall, and Junior kept them when he opened the gym, calling them inspirational. At first, no one took much notice of the posters. Sometimes someone would make lewd suggestions about the pretty white women in their flowery summer dresses, smiling down on the black meat. But then one of the younger boys broke a finger, costing him a fight, and he went rushing around the room in various kinds of pain and started tearing them down. Junior was on him in a flash, wrapping the boy in a bear hug and screaming at him to leave things alone. Mr Singer, an immigrant's child, he shouted. All glory stitched with defeat. You have to sew. The whole gym was shocked by the outburst and the word went round. Down at Junior's, don't mess with the singers. I examined the fresh scuffs on my gloves where the policeman kicked them. It's 5am. Six black boys and three white are clocking their morning miles, the black boys allowing time for a stop and search. They arrive at six when I'll work them till they're sick. And while they work, I shall sketch them with a speed matching theirs. As they squat and thrust and skip and pummel, I'll call the sequences, footwork, balance, and hold my pencil against the page. Michael, who is new, will spit jokes to cover his discomfort, but the others are marking me for him, easing him in. Man is cool, man. Blood is crazy, but he made three champions out of here. When they drag themselves, exhausted to the locker room, I shall go with them, to massage, examine and talk, but I'll leave my sketchbook outside. They know how I feel. The gym is public, the locker room's not. That's where it ended for me five years ago, in a locker room, arrested for assault because a wild man had attacked me in a nightclub. The board took my licence while I was inside, saying I could keep what brains I had left. 
Junior took me on, saying whatever was left was good enough for him. I unhooked the rope from the wall holding the punch bag and eased the heavy bag into position. Then I crouch, giving it a left jab and a right hook as hard as I can. Mo has a fight in three weeks at York Hall. He's late. He's been out the night before at some newspaper's photo call. Enjoy it, I ask him. Plenty of girls, he is smiling a dirty smile. I go for him. Stop wasting my time. Lose this fight and you'll never see publicity again. I have my left fist against his cheek before he's moved. See, even an old man can get you. Be late at York Hall and it's over. Only winners win. I turn away in disgust. Maybe I've got you all wrong. I stay near him all morning. I make him mad. I ball at him and sketch his movements up close, getting him to channel his frustration into work, draw him a lesson. As a kid, I was always scribbling on something, walls, doors, paper. I loved soldiers and tanks and trees and the face of my aunt. I did pictures of her all the time. I did birthday pictures, Christmas scenes and once made a big panorama of her room. She didn't like me boxing. I keep you in school for something better. When I started to train, the older men laughed, seeing me with a pencil. But I did a picture of Lennox Lewis to celebrate the championship and Herbie bought it off me. Then they all wanted one. In the gym, one of the white boys throws up doing trunk curls. Everyone groans. I clean up the mess with sawdust, but the stink hovers in the air for the rest of the morning. By the afternoon it has faded into the general atmosphere of leather and sweat. Andrew has noticed how much time Marina is spending in my room. What's going on, he asks me. You and she? No. Well, you should be. Fight you for her, lover boy. This made me laugh. Andrew is a big guy who's done violent things, but he's not a fighter. Though he didn't like me laughing, so I backed off when I saw his eyes go a little crazy. We're only talking, I told him. I'm not standing in your way. Talking? Shit. That's what you're talking. Shit. I wasn't lying. Marina and I aren't doing anything. I just didn't tell him the whole story. Marina talks. I draw. She held out against posing until one night she surprised me. She switched off the hoover, lifted my sketchbook from the bedside table and handed it to me without a word. She sat on the chair, holding her head up in profile, imperious, like a queen with a short nose and a smoothly rounded chin. I told her to relax, until eventually I told her I couldn't draw someone so stiff. That's when she told me she hated her face, too square, too Slav, too often mistaken for Russian. A Russian doll, I said, and suddenly she couldn't sit still, couldn't stop telling me things. She has a way of curling her mouth into a moon when she talks, round and full when she's excited, half dark when speaking of more painful things. Her hair grows out of a grassland of fine black down on the back of her neck, and her hands have long fingers, with a curious twist of the third finger of her left hand. Apparently this means she will never marry. The twist makes a ring impossible to put on. In Romania, she said, superstition, nonsense... I come to England. Two nights ago, after giving me a history of Roman Dacia, she said, You take me out?
Mo may have lost his bout already. He's been late twice this week, and there's only four days to his fight. Love, Michael said when I asked him why. Hello, lover boy. I shouted across the room when Mo arrived, making sure everyone would hear. He shot me a smirking look of pride mixed with hatred, which could only mean Michael was right. Some girl has got him. None of your business, Mo spat back. I can tell Junior you're not ready yet. I am ready yet. He hadn't moved from the entrance. I don't need no has-been getting me vexed. Has done, I reminded him. I got my belt. You got nothing yet. Michael was the only one not looking at Mo. Walking over to where Michael was wrapped around a weightlifting machine, Mo yanked on a rope holding the weights in balance and leant into Michael's face. You been talking? You been saying? Michael was trying to sound unconcerned, but he had a hint of submission in his voice. I wondered whether he took this habit into the ring, backing down from bigger men. Both of us were waiting for Moe's next move when someone called out, breaking the tension. Fight is Saturday, let's work. I gave Moe a bigger target to hit. I sparred stick and move with him, talking all the time, reminding him of all the ways in which a fighter can get beaten, especially wanting to look good for some girl. Girls can hurt you more than any opponent, getting in your head, dividing your attention. My attention was divided too. Am I being confused by Marina's signals, like Andrew? I'm still wondering this morning, should I take Marina to see Mo fight? Andrew is angry with me. He's a hot-blooded boy and threw an empty can at me last night when he heard she'd asked me out and not him. I don't want any trouble, so I didn't push it. I'm not afraid of him, though his craziness could do me harm. But I couldn't help feeling good about seeing him brought down by Marina, my Russian doll. It's colder this morning, though it's the same routine. Early alarm, quick wash, the click of the hostel door behind me. See me run. Which they do. Shortly after Arnold Street, a patrol car pulls in again, another red one, though today it's a different crew. The driving's more crisp, and I don't recognise the man in uniform motioning me to stop, opening the door, getting out. This man's about forty, fit, greying hair and hard eyes. He's wearing a cap and a gun. Bag on the floor. While I'm putting the bag down, a white van pulls in behind the car. Where are you off to? Canning Town. So early? From the van, an officer in a black jumpsuit joins us, with a brown and white spaniel that's scampering around. The dog is taking an interest in my bag. He starts to bark. What's in the bag? The dog handler is talking to me. He sounds jumpy. Kit, why is the dog barking? I don't know. Ask him. That's an idea, but why don't you tell me? I don't like him, but I make a list. A pair of gloves, a towel, some shorts and a protector. The dog is running circles round the bag, sniffing like mad, twisting first to look down at it and then back at his handler. The commotion is making me nervous. Show me your hands. The first officer is speaking again. He wipes a cotton ball across my palms and seals the ball in a plastic evidence bag. It's over so quickly I'm impressed. He has quick hands, like Mo. Now, sir, what's in the bag? Hearing sir, I know things aren't going too well. He's being formal, which doesn't help me relax. I don't reply. He's not bothered with any radio. 
He's concentrating on whatever he thinks he can see in front of him. Sir, it's 4am. We have reasonable suspicions about you and your bag. Reasonable suspicions. He's thinking this may end up in court. I already told you what's in the fucking bag. Look, as I bend down, the dog barks at me. But before I can reach the zip, something hits me from behind. Two more officers from the van. They know what they're doing. It hurts. But I manage a heel into a shin and hear a grunt before I feel the crack in my shoulder. One's got my right temple against the ground, and the other is kneeling on my arms, talking abuse. Bastard, think you'd get away with it? I'm trying to tell him I don't know what he's talking about, that something might be broken, but I can't seem to do it with my windpipe twisted sideways. As I mouth and splutter, I can hear sirens. Someone is shouting orders. Out of the corner of my eye, I can see the officer's gun pointing in my direction. As I stare at it, I'm feeling pain, and the streetlights don't seem so bright anymore. Someone should turn them on to help keep the streets safe. I need to see where I'm going with Marina. body would not be what he wanted it for the fight. He didn't ache as much and was back on the rounds, slowing down a bit now, saving his energy for the day itself, building up his time at the gym bit by bit to let the bruises cool, arnica oil in hot baths and cool early nights with the window open. This is Anna Whitworm reading from Boxer Handsome. Bobby wanted to light up now as he left the gym, but he didn't. He walked into the evening air and let his lungs fill with it. He thought about her, the girl with hair blacker than his, knotted up so he could see the nervous vein in her neck like a whip. She wore one chain, a cross, and he could smell her perfume. Two beauty dots on her chin, darker than a freckle, lighter than dirt. She had a stare on her and wasn't afraid to look someone in the eye and keep them there. She'd kept Bobby there. He had kept his eyes on her until she had smiled at him. Then he had to look away. He crossed the road, jogging the last bit, and was smiling as he walked into the park walking tall, a little bit cold, smelling of pine from the shower. He rolled back his shoulder blades, heard the click, felt the muscle, and rolled his neck, gently as he turned into the park. And there he saw Mikey, sitting with his head in his hands on a bench, his back shaking, crying without shame in broad daylight, bare arms and a white vest and a jumper round his neck. Mikey worked as a sometime roofer. Sometimes he ran with the travellers who got him the work, 
Mikey was one of those shapeshifters moving in different circles easily, the joker in any group, a harmless fat fool, but loyal to Bobby. Bobby had known him long enough to love him. Mikey was the closest thing Bobby was going to get to a brother. Nothing in common but their background and roots. They were as good as blood. And even though he knew, like an omen, that talking to his friend was going to bring Bobby problems that weren't his own, he couldn't turn away. You all right, mate? Mikey lifted his head, red around the eyes, no sleep in his strained face. His vest ripped, his jumper hanging off his shoulders. His hairline receded so much he might as well have shaved it. And drink had given him a chin and made him soft around the arms. His gut pushed out when he sat down. No, I've been having murders with her. Bobby put his bag down. She fuck your vest up like that? She says I try and control her. Mikey had froth and spit around his lips. Where he'd been crying to himself and shouting at his Vanessa. Bobby was not good at telling people what to do with their love life. He had never been in love. She's fucking someone else. I know. I fucking know it. There was no point trying to talk his kind of sense. He was wired and mad, pouring drink into a body that needed to lie down and sleep. Even so, Bobby tried. He was in a good mood. You aren't thinking right. You need to go home and you need to sleep and you need to deal with this tomorrow. Bobby sighed as Mikey nodded. You need to go home and sleep, Mikey. Home's that way. Bobby pointed behind him. I don't want to go home. What do I have to go home for? She isn't there, and when she does come home, if she does come home, it's just going to be murders all over again. Might as well just stay out. Bobby picked up his bag. Not here, though. Come on, let's go home. Mikey shook his head. I know who it is, though, that fucking fat cunt who started managing the pub. Mikey wiped his bare arm across his face and trailed pale snot on the hairs of his forearm. I'm going to sort it. I'm going to go down there right now. Bobby put his arm on Mikey's shoulder. Walk with me. You're in no state to fight. Mikey shook his head and blinked back tears, cracking his fingers and forming small fists. I can get a touch on him, watch. No, you can't. Not like this. I saw her phone. She's been working shifts there. Too many shifts there. I said I'd pay for everything. Why does she want to keep going there to work for? Then I see her phone. Bobby felt for his friend. Hopeless, flabby Mikey. Sitting on a bench around the corner from the pub his girlfriend was cheating on him in. Mikey, who could pay for nothing. I said I want to marry her. You what? I want to do right by her. Mikey, the boy trying to be a man. Bobby laughed and put an arm around him. Mikey frowned and wiped her face with his sleeve. We're 20 years old. How many people do you know that have got married? Mikey thought about it. My mum and dad? Your mum and dad? No, our lot, I mean. Bobby lifted Mikey's vest to show his grey-white gut. Look at you, fat as fuck. Who's marrying you? Mikey laughed, a painful laugh, pushing Bobby's hands away. He sat trying to get his breath back. Mikey nodded. You make me feel stupid. Well, why do you want to? Maggie and Joe were still married and it had meant something to them both. Bands of gold and the white dress and those photographs and albums. Maggie kept them all, everything she'd ever had with Joe. But Bobby had watched his dad get sick and his mum grow lonely, awake at night, washing tablecloths and wiping down lampshades at three in the morning, sitting in the sounds of the washing machine, reading her book. She's the only girl who liked me. How else do I keep her? Tired, he squinted when he was talking, his tongue large and hot in his mouth. He spoke with a rasp. You've got choices, Bobby. The way you look lets you pick. You can keep dipping your cock all day long. 
dipping his cock into the same girls he'd pushed over in the playground, the same girls and their friends, over and over. When Bobby wasn't at the club, he was watching the four walls of his room with nothing on them apart from the odd flyer for a rave and his picture of Tyson, thinking about some of the girls he had fucked and wondering about the ones he hadn't. You're only with Vanessa because she's here. So what? So Vanessa and you will always fight, and she'll always cheat, and you'll always drink, and you'll take from each other because it's better than being here and alone. Bobby could see Mikey's eyes fill with tears, and he turned away. You can have better. You've always had your boxing. You can always get out. Maybe. Bobby felt heavy between these nowhere and somewhere corners of his life. The towel block had looked after him just as much as it wore him out. He knew the faces behind the curtains, and as a kid Bobby would always be fed if Maggie was working late. You knew your neighbour, but the blocks were too high, too dark and too small, and there were too many windows and too many doors. There were too many homes and not enough space. Right, where's your missus? Working there now, she just left, scratched the shit out of my shirt and left. Mad bitch. Bobby sniffed his last clean, fresh bit of early evening air. I need to sort this, Bobby. She's making me look like a prick. Mikey used to bring Bobby's mum a bottle of wine or some chocolates when he came round, just after she'd got rid of Joe, had paid for her to get taxis to Asda and back for her shopping. He said he remembered Maggie looking after him when his mum was at work, and Mikey's mum had watched Bobby the same way. Mikey's softness was beginning to irritate, the spineless sulking, the sad way he looked up to Bobby. Mikey needed to fight back. But you helped out family, and Mikey was family. Take me there, then. They turned a corner, and it was like walking into winter. The late spring in the air was gone, and the houses went from old to new, from old red brick to the concrete of an ugly tower block ahead, one of the bad ones, and a sleepy garage on a cul-de-sac. The pub stood next to a blank, whitewashed wall, and even this was stained, as if the cigarette smoke from inside had crawled its way through the stone and brick and paint. One man, wearing a knitted jumper over hardened ale belly, stood outside puffing. Two wooden tables and a rubbish tip down an alley. A crispy-looking St George's flag hung from a top bedroom window, waving weakly like a dirty rag. It looked like it had been hung there since the 80s, a bloody cross over a door. This England was shit, Bobby thought. Who could live in this? Mikey sat at one of the wooden tables outside and put his head in his hands. Which one is he? Bobby asked. He's the bald one. The bald one? You'll know him. He's the one who runs the place. Bobby pulled open the wooden door and took in the dank smells, the grime, the scotch and the shitty plumbing. Vanessa with her hair up and her eyes swollen from crying. Stopped what she was doing. She knew. All right? Bobby nodded. She went to move from behind the bar, her eyes widening and her hands shaking on the pint glass she was putting back. Did he send you here? Bobby held his hand up. Clear your glasses, love. You're all right. Bobby could hear her calling him from the bar, begging him not to do whatever he was about to do. He pulled himself together. He pretended that nothing meant anything and let the creeping little violent bars in his head get louder and his fists get harder. He wasn't Bobby. He was a walking punch and there'd be no thought, no honour. Bobby knew even before he knocked this man out that it was not a fair, decent fight. He went first to the gents. It was a lucky first look. He was a tall, broad man and Bobby, for one small moment, wondered if he had it in him to knock him down. He was bigger than Bobby, taller, staunch. The bald man turned from the dryer and didn't even see it coming. Bobby didn't wait. He got on with it, didn't put the fear in and didn't prowl jungle style beforehand. 
Bobby wanted to be here no more than minutes. It was just a quick three punch and out against the dryer of the men's toilets. He didn't have time to ask Bobby who he was. Bobby walloped him once around the face, cheekbone, once in the stomach, and a last clean crack on the jaw to send him spinning and into a short, slumpy sleep. The man's shirt gathered around his neck, burying his cracked chin and catching the dribble from his mouth. Keep your hands off Vanessa, you understand? The world came back for a second, and he could hear his name being called out. Bobby. Leave it, Bobby. Leave him alone, Bobby. The world calling his name. Blood pumping, heart moving, up and down through his throat, to his gut, to his balls. He felt big. Heart pumping and face hot, he drew his arm back. Smash. Crack. The man's face soft against his hard fist. now. The music you're listening to is by Peter Kunert. Check out his big sounds at soundcloud.com slash kunert hyphen beats. and a scientist. You can also see his work online, performed at Liars League. Raise your hands in front of you and close your fists and tilt your head to better see your opponent. This is defiance. If the temperature is high enough, muscles and tendons contract like bacon in a hot pan. You do not choose anymore. These contractions contort the body into a pose beyond your control. This is called the pugilistic pose. Fists balled, arms pulled up, head twisted slightly to one side. A boxer eyeing up his opponent or a human being preparing to fight, whatever the reason. This is not instinctual. This is a visceral reaction of meat and flesh to heat. All humanity is common in this final resistance. Across history and character, the harsh physics of biology underlies insolence in the face of fire. In the south of Italy on the 24th of August, in 79 AD, just after midday, Mount Vesuvius erupted, pouring hell into the sky and burying the town of Pompeii in ash and rock and rubble. It is thought that the majority of those who lost their lives in Pompeii were killed by suffocation and falling debris. There would have been heat, but not enough. Not enough for the pugilistic pose. Ten miles further north in Herculaneum, by the sea, the remains tell a different story. An inch-thick powder of ash coated the town as the day wore on, as the looming volcano rent the sky, and many fled. For a long time, that was what archaeologists thought, that this was a lucky town, that its people had escaped, leaving only a few unfortunates behind. Then the archaeologists reached the shore. Just after midday, the eruption began. But it was not until the dead of night, after the sun had set, that death came to Herculaneum. Massed in the boathouses by the shore, the archaeologists found hundreds of bodies, 
Men, women, children. Pugilists, all of them. The volcano had been pumping rock and ash and gas into the sky for 12 hours until finally a mass of superheated gas and rock fragments became dense enough and it descended. It would have been indescribable, irresistible and impossible. A cloud of nightmares moving at hundreds of miles per hour, faster than anything in the world. Fulminant shock is the name for this death. A heat wave of 500 degrees Celsius. Soft tissues like the eyes and the brain vaporised. Vital organs stopped. As near to an instant death as one could imagine. Muscles and tendons contracted. Hands and feet and spines and neck and everything clenched. 300 people, 300 pugilists down by the shore, as if proximity to the sea could have saved them. This contraction must have happened within seconds, because seconds later they were buried in thick ash and fixed in time. The stronger and larger muscles contract more than the weaker as the heat steals water and form and the pugilistic pose is adopted. In a modern crematorium, you can see a slower version of the same tale. Any mortician knows of the deceased sitting up before the body finally breaks down. It is not spoken of. It would distress mourners unnecessarily for a quirk of biology to bring a semblance of movement and life back to the dead. For simpler cremations, using pyres, it is a slower affair still, and harder to hide. A pyre is not insulated, is not efficient. Here, the dead will rise in stages as the heat slowly reaches out for them. These final contractions bring them no solace. They serve only to turn the stomach of those watching. Some practitioners where these simple cremations are carried out delicately snip tendons and muscles before wrapping the body, so the grieving do not have to suffer such insult. The pugilistic pose is perhaps not the best name. Pugilism is the skill and art and sport of fist-fighting from pugil, the Latin for boxer, similar to pugnare, to fight, and pugnus, a fist. The skill and art and sport of fist-fighting, this is not what is seen when heat rises. Art and sport denote choice. Perhaps in self-defence, pugilism without choice could be practised, but fist-fighting alone seems unlikely in a defensive scrabble for survival or escape. In that situation you will kick, you will scratch, and you will wrestle and bite and tear, and do whatever is necessary, regardless of the skill, or art, or sport. A human being will do what it can to survive when there is any chance. Pugilism requires a conscious choice. Yet the name is stuck. It strikes a romantic chord on the surface, hands raised in defiance, ready to fight against the inevitable force of death. But look at the spine, twisted, and the legs curled up in the fingers, yes in a fist, but not the controlled fist of a boxer. The pugilistic pose is a visceral reaction, and nothing more. It is the harsh physics of biology, of what happens to flesh when heat is applied. Any symbolism is a conceit of the living. Any temperature that could bring about this contortionism would have already killed the person in question, and it is not suffering, it is not defiance, it is not a spirit being damned or clawing for salvation or reaching for loved ones or trying to tell us something. It is flesh and heat, yet we bury it with meaning. hard to dissociate the body from the mind, the flesh that remains from the consciousness that is left. 
Disasters aside, the destruction of a body with concentrated fire allows the physical to follow the mental, in ending. Interment serves the same purpose. It ends the presence of the physical body, hides it beneath six feet of soil. All of these practices are for the benefit of those left behind, rather than those who have departed. Burial is not always calm. The six feet of soil was first stipulated by the lawmakers of London during an outbreak of plague, and it makes sense. Shallow graves have a habit of getting disturbed, and a decaying body is a vector for disease. A modern burial involves a body that has been filled with chemical preservatives and is sealed in a coffin, locked away, alone. This solitary confinement was not always the way. Some of the plague pits in London contain over a hundred skeletons. For more than 500 years in central Paris, the ground around the Holy Innocent Cemetery swallowed bodies. It was full. Some of the large grave pits held more than 1,500 dead, pressed against one another, bones mixing until identity was lost. Locals complained of the smell, the permeating taste of death. Basement walls and neighbouring residences burst through with the pressure of the dead, half decomposed or skeletonized. After a rainy spring in 1780, finally the decision was made. The cemetery was closed. Six years later, the bodies were exhumed and the bones moved to catacombs, a near-unidentifiable mass. They remain hidden, close to one another but gone from the eyes of the living. The physical is concealed, the consciousness destroyed. Still, it is tempting to read something into this, this stillness and sepulchral silence. A quiet acceptance? Whether pugilism or quiet decomposition, it is still just the matter of being reacting with the environment. What to do with the dead, these masses of flesh that hold remnants of affection? The quiet decomposition of a grave is not for all. In times of war or exceptional circumstances, there are burials at sea. Traditionally, the body would be sewn into sailcloth, weighted with rocks or cannonballs, or a heavy casket, and then slipped into the endless dark water below. Rarely, in very cold water where there is no oxygen, the body does not decompose normally. Adipocere develops. As fat is broken down in the absence of any oxygen, it turns to something akin to wax. This grave, or corpse wax, allows the body to retain something of its form. As with pugilism, as with the quiet decomposition, there is allegory here. It is something for those left behind to wonder at, to worry at as we search for meaning. Yet pugilism has taught us. The dead give no meaning. There are some who are free from these emotional ties that linger with the body of the deceased. In some places the body is not hidden away or burnt. In some places there is symbolism, but it is not a fearful symbolism. In Tibet and Inner Mongolia there are practitioners of Vajrayana Buddhism who believe in the transmigration of souls. To them the body is an empty vessel, and upon death it holds no meaning. Here they practice sky burial. The land is too hard and cold and full of rocks for digging graves. Timber and fuel are too rare to waste on a pyre. Here they leave the recently dead as arms for the birds, stripped and prepared and left limp beneath the open sky for nature to take its course. The bodies return to the earth, and the soul has moved on. When only bones remain, they are broken to pieces and mixed with flour, and fed to the vultures. Nothing is wasted. The body holds no power over those who are left behind. What made that person who they were is gone. If you raise your hands in front of you and close your fists and tilt your head to better see your opponent, this is defiance. 
if you clench every muscle as you try to escape an unbearable pain, this is suffering. Lie still and relax your body, and this is acceptance or a quiet defeat. The dead can neither defy nor suffer nor accept nor be defeated. The contractions of the corpses at Herculaneum, forms twisted, the quiet hidden decay of a body under mounds of soil. The placid stillness, save for the tearing and pulling by vultures and beasts as they take their arms during a sky burial. None of these things tell of an innate human defiance, or suffering, or acceptance of death. They only tell of heat and dirt, and flesh and sky, and that there was no fight to be had. Contributors were Anna Whitworm, Leslie Mapp, Ian Green. Music by Peter Kunert. Production by Bernie Barkley. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.